You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, this is Lisa Birnbach, and this is the first time since September 11th, 2001, I haven't been in New York City. And it's a strange feeling. I feel guilty, although my not being at home has nothing to do with this awful day. It's a fluke that I am spending time with my West Coast exhibits. And also, I guess because there's so much very frightening stuff happening in the world, too much to monitor, that I wasn't even aware that this ominous day had returned so soon. I have to say, not being in New York is relaxing only because at home, my TV is already set to the news and it's kind of an endless spiral that I'm in of watching the news, then feeling bad, then saying I'm not going to watch it and then watching it and so on and so forth. Since we've been away in Los Angeles, Everyone, it seems, has said to us, when are you moving out here? When are you moving out here? Now, this is not a new phenomenon. I think a lot of the people I know in California came from the East Coast, and they want to understand why we've selected the difficult way of living with snow, with slush, with cold, with gray days, with subways, crowds, expense, blah, blah, blah. And they have taken this path, which is sunny and pretty and Botoxed. No offense. But you know what? New York is a wonderful place to live. And even COVID notwithstanding, it's a good place to live. Now, New York has been very much the object of scorn, derision. It's a hellhole. It's dead. It's over. A lot of people are calling it a dystopia. Uh, There's been a lot of attention given to some homeless men who've not been marauding, but maybe scared people out of their higher-priced homes. A a lot of this is just the usual drama of getting attention to one's story in second-tier or possibly owned by Rupert Murdoch newspaper. There are junkies in New York, but I'm in Los Angeles. There are junkies in Los Angeles. I passed one today on the street. And frankly, the number of tents and people living in tents is heartbreaking in Los Angeles. So, you know what? New York is managing the COVID pretty well, considering how hard it has been and how densely we are packed in. And people who are able to leave the city and go to their second house, good for them. Some of them may come back. Some of them may not come back. We will get by. We just have to be patient. Meanwhile, my interview this week is especially East Coast feeling, although I'm here. I recorded it when I was home in New York with a very East Coast guy, the writer, Christopher Buckley. Christopher is not only a Yaley, but he spoke to me from Connecticut, that preppiest of all states the nutmeg state. He is, of course, the son of conservative thinker, writer, and publisher William F. Buckley Jr., who founded the National Review, a publication which later ousted the son of the founder, Christopher Buckley. Christopher was talking to me from his parents' house in Connecticut, from his father's study. I could feel the Buckleyana in the room around him, which was delightful. His new book is called Make Russia Great Again. It's published by Simon & Schuster. You know, if there's one thing you can say about the Trump administration, 
It is a satire, just minus the humor and any vestige of humanity. Before Christopher, it's time for my five things, and you may notice a pattern. Number one, burgers never say die. Yes, indeed. This is the name of a burger joint in the east side of Los Angeles in Silver Lake, where the hipsters are. I guess somebody called this neighborhood Silver Lake and Los Feliz and Echo Park, sort of the Williamsburg of Los Angeles. Okay. Burgers never say die. May be the only hamburger of my dreams at this point. Sorry, Shake Shack. The hamburgers are fried very flat. The edges are very crispy and lacy. I think there are pickles on them and Russian dress. It's not worth a flight to California to get one, but it is certainly worth a long drive to get one. I think they're open Wednesday through Sunday. It's, It's just extraordinary how good those hamburgers are. I've had two, three, three already on this trip, and I'm a vegetarian. No, I kid. Number two, Kismet Restaurant. This is a terrific Middle Eastern restaurant, and, and let me say in Los Angeles, there are many terrific Middle Eastern restaurants, and I'd eaten there once or twice on previous trips, but this week I got an email, or last week, that sort of broke my heart. It said, we are really struggling. We don't know how to go forward. It would help us a lot if you, our customers, would order in, would order a pie. We're selling groceries, and so on. But that that sentence, we are struggling, is not an easy one to write. It's a confession. So we ordered from there, and it was good. Number three in the hip parade. Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles. Okay, longtime listeners to this podcast know that I have a thing for fried chicken. It is my kryptonite and my weakness and also my pleasure. I've had Roscoe's once or twice before in my life. The first time was for a dear friend's Shiva. Okay, don't knock it till you've tried it. It is so good, but it's not fancy and it's not gimmicky. It's just basic good fried chicken. It's not made too crispy. It's not too doughy. It's not too anything. It's just perfect. Herb Hudson founded Roscoe's. He was a Harlem-born chef, I guess, who moved to California. There are eight branches in California, and it's great. Number four. We did something that felt normal and great last week. Our family actually visited another family at their house and garden. I mean, you can visit people if you sit properly apart and have a conversation and have laughs and learn about them and drink some limeade and not even... You you forget that that was what we could do once upon a time. It was such a feeling of normality and such a feeling of joy to be with new people after being in a bubble with the same people. And I enjoyed watching my kids get along with their kids, and I enjoyed watching my fella get along with their fella. Anyway, it was a real highlight, and there was a nectarine tart. I mean, that was just great. And number five, that baby. And if you want to see a picture of the baby, the 32-pound baby who can lift a 15-pound kettlebell, you'll have to go on my website at lisabernbach.com. Coming up, 
Christopher Buckley, Make Russia Great Again. Don't go away. My guest today, Christopher Buckley, has a new novel, which he must have written in an Adderall-fueled frenzy two weeks ago because it is so up to date with the crazy politics of our time. It's called Make Russia Great Again. I am so happy to talk to you, Christopher. And (laughs) I'm very happy to be here with you representing the makers of Adderall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, And before we go any further, I just have to say that thank you for smoking is, which we're not going to talk about, but is one of my favorite contemporary novels. Really, just it's something I read, I pick up when I need a laugh, and well, I need a know. laugh many days. Yes, we, we, uh, I think we all, <laughs> we all need a laugh these days. So this novel, which is a parody, I guess I need to explain that, is about this moment now, but you've invented a new chief of staff in the White House for Donald Trump. And that is Herb Nutterman. How did Herb come to be? Well, my very first novel, Lisa, was a book called The White House Mess. I I worked for George H.W. Bush uh, as his speechwriter when he was vice president. I was there for two years in the early 80s. And, and, you know, it was was quite an adventure. In the course of that, I started reading a lot of White House memoirs, Mm -hmm. which are really a delicious sub-genre. Simon & Schuster, my publisher, uh, just recently... Seems to be publishing a lot of them these days. It's they published uh, John Bolton's book uh, right. uh, memorably, uh, and Mary Trump's. Yeah, as a and... matter of fact, he, Simon Schuster brought out Bolton's book the very same day it brought out my novel. Guess oh, which wow. one has sold seven hundred and eighty thousand copies? Not mine, but, but uh, anyway, it, it's a it's a. a it's kind of a, a delicious literary subgenre of uh, White House memoirs. They they all seem to have two themes. One is it wasn't my fault, and <laughs> and two, it think it would have been much worse if I hadn't been there. Right, and and that's probably uh, that's probably true of Mr. Bolton's book. Anyway, so my first novel was a parody White House memoir. And it was, uh, the book came out in 1986, but it starts on January 20th, 1989, which was the day that whichever president succeeded uh, Mr. Reagan would be inaugurated. And it starts with the new president going up to the White House in his motorcade to escort Mr. Reagan to the Capitol. But Mr. Reagan's gone a little bit dotty and doesn't want to leave. Uh, you know, nothing, ma- nothing malign, right. <laughs> like as we might be experiencing this coming January. But yes. he just, you know, he's in his jammies and it's cold out, and he just doesn't want to leave. So the new president, you know, has this uh, <laughs> bit of a problem even before he's sworn in. And the narrator of that book is the new chief of staff. And guess what? His name. Is is Herb, Herb. also? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in thirty four years, Lisa, my imagination uh, has run the gamut from a 
to be. Another White House faux or fake, as Mr. Trump would say, White House memoir, narrated by a uh, chief of staff. Named narrated Earth. by a chief of staff who is now incarcerated. He is now but, serving but, a, uh, an unspecified uh, jail uh, prison sentence at Federal election. But also cheerful. I mean, what I love about Herb is it's very clear he comes from the hospitality business. He comes from the hotel world. And of course, that's why Donald Trump hired him for this position, because he often just has appointed people with no actual qualifications for what they're doing. It seems the less the better. And Herb is just sort of delighted to manage the president and to be in his orbit. He seems to both believe in Trump's magnetism. You have a great line about how how do you measure magnetism in in wattage or in you, you know whatever, whatever that is by whatever unit one measures magnetism in I think he, he says I think that was the exact <laughs> sentence yes well Herb was uh, for twenty seven years with the Trump organization he was at one point the food and beverage manager at one of Mr Trump's resorts which is called Farago Surmer. Yes, and I love he's that. He's happily retired at the beginning of the, of the book, but his phone rings. He sees on the caller ID, it says, you know, POTUS. Uh, mm-hmm. And his wife, Hedda, freaks out because she, she's half, very happily retired. And he picks up the phone and hears the familiar voice saying, how's my favorite Jew? And Trump has now gone through six uh, White House chief of staffs and no one will take the job. And so he turns to his faithful Herb Nutterman, who really doesn't want the job at all. But he he's, but he's a good guy, you know, he's a he's a he's a schlub, but he's got a he's got a good heart. And so he, you know, he says when your president calls, your president calls. He's and sure. anyway, so he's an he's essentially an innocent <laughs> in the middle of this swamp. And having an innocent, say, uncompromised, if you will, narrator, I find a kind of a fun periscope with which to view the the swamp and its many creatures. I I wouldn't ever compare myself to the great P.G. Woodhouse, but there's a you know there's a playfulness of tone in the book that I think keeps it back from you know the the screechy edge. Oh, it totally, it totally does. And what's really fun is you have found yourself on the precipice between criticism of this administration and a romp. And so I suppose if somebody wanted to look at it through the lens of Trump's supporters, they could enjoy it in in some I don't know if they could, but they could. Well, probably. <laughs> that but, might but, be a stretch. That I might encu- be a stretch, I but but it's not a mean it. book. It's not a mean spirited book, even if some of the people I mean, Veep was a parody about the White House with a very self interested president played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and people who were always bickering, always swearing, always imagined the people of America to be just uninteresting, unattractive, and useless. So, you know, there is a world in which Make Russia Great Again really fits very neatly because the world has become meaner. 
think about it. I mean, we're all comparing these days to Nixon's final days. And in those days, Republicans said, oh, this is a shame. This can't stand. We we must ask the president, you know, we have to impeach the president or give him a chance to resign. And he did. And we moved on. And now there's just, oh, my God, your character based on Lindsey Graham is incredible. (laughs) Yes, he's he's one of my favorite characters. He's one of my favorite characters. And of course, the idea that Senator Biscuit, oh, I was going to ask you to read something because he's just hilarious. The way he has slithered into a position of sick, sick, how do you say it, sycophantism? Uh, Sycophantism is a good word. And I think that, yeah, I think that would I just I was just look, leafing through it looking for his introduction here. Yeah. Well, uh, he's known as Squiggly. Squiggly is the Senator Squiggly Biscuit of the great state of, of South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. 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 No any similarity to anybody you've heard of. Well, I know purely... uh, there's a disclaimer Lisa the, yes, at the beginning is. it says any person finding any resemblance between themselves and persons depicted herein should probably be ashamed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And uh, yes, yeah, and the, on page 79, you have a nice introduction to Senator Squig, Lee Biscuit. Uh, would you, did you want me to? Re- yeah, re- why don't you read, read that, that first paragraph or the ro- to Road to Damascus, maybe? Okay. Senator Squig Lee Biscuit of South Carolina was an unlikely Trump champion. He certainly didn't start out as one. Prior to the 2016 campaign, he was calling Mr. Trump just about every unpleasant name under the sun, from kook to damn lunatic and lower than alligator poo. Strong words indeed. (laughs) Then, when it appeared Mr. Trump was going to be the nominee of the Republican Party, Squiggly had a classic road to Damascus moment. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not really supposed to laugh at your own stuff, I suppose. But No, uh, but uh, come on, it's uh, delightful. Uh, well, uh, so how, you. in your opinion, does the person whose name rhymes with Binsley Ram, how does he turn into such a toady to Trump? Seriously. Well, uh, well let's talk about... Um, the actual yes let's talk about lindsey graham lindsey graham was of south carolina once described himself as john mccain's wingman yes uh he was a devoted uh, i think the word protege is is probably apt he was a devoted protege of senator mccain senator mccain was a tough hombre but you really couldn't fault his honor Right. And uh, Lindsey Graham was his Sancho Panza, you know, to mm-hmm. his Don Quixote. And then, you know, one of the first, <laughs> one of the first alarm bells that we should have paid more attention to was in uh, 2016. And I remember reading it, sitting at a campfire, reading the uh, newspaper when Trump said that he uh, he didn't like. Uh, war heroes who he preferred yes, war who heroes were, who, who didn't get shot down. Yes. I remember saying to the person across the table, I said, "Well, you know, he'll be he'll be 
Trump will be gone in two days. This is right. you can't say this about, about a hero. And well, guess what? Here he is. Here we are, three and a half uh, years into his presidency. So it strikes me. I mean, politicians are politicians, and they look in two thousand. I think it was George W. Bush's political operatives spread the vile rumor that John McCain's adopted um, daughter Daughter. from Bangladesh was an illegitimate black child. Right. Now, it it doesn't get more vile than that, right? I think we can stipulate. Well, you know, a few months later, there's there's John McCain hugging George W. Bush at the podium at the Republican convention. So politics does make strange bedfellows. But in the case of Mr. Graham's 180, Volta Facce, as the Italians (laughs) say, it seems to be all the more remarkable, frankly. And he he has carried so much water for Mr. Trump <laughs> yes. that his shoulders surely must be sore. He's going to need rotator cuff surgery, <laughs> you know. And maybe if he loses to this very attractive young man, Jamie Harrison, who's giving him a real run for his money, mm-hmm. uh, maybe then former Senator Graham will have time to check into the hospital and have the rotator cuff surgery done in a deliberate way. <laughs> and perhaps restore his manhood at the well, same time. That's I'm no one to, you know, rule on anyone else's manhood, but if they if they want to have a peek there, they're <laughs> they're very good doctors in South Carolina. I'm married to one as a matter of fact. Oh, how fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's right. We'll hear a little more about her later. She's at the top of my five things that Uh, make my life better list. You will not be surprised. I know. I'm going to learn more about your bride. One thing that is interesting is that everybody has said, you couldn't make this stuff up about everything from, I like my war heroes who weren't shot down, to Mexican rapists, to grab them by the pussy to every everything and then the impeachment which no one remembers and you know whatever it is his sponging off us and his playing golf for the equivalent of a work year mm-hmm. of an entire work year but remember he is the hardest working president in american history in history now, don't his, lose sight of that no i'm not no, 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 and please. also he deserves to have his his bust up at mount rushmore and etc it's you know you you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you I, I do, but I do, but, but you I, do. I, can't, yeah. I can't make it as good as reality. I mean, as the, I would. Yeah, I don't think I'd have dared to uh, write a novel in which a president nominated himself as a fifth head on Mount Rushmore. No, you know, of course not. We just would just go. Oh, come on, you know, please. Yes, and yet. <laughs> and yet, yeah, here we are. Yeah. And that was last week, and who knows? And and that's the thing. You have successfully written a parody of this, of this moment, with Fox News and with Lindsey Graham and with Donald Trump and with the real Rudy Giuliani <laughs> in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And it all is so real in the era of self-parody. I mean, the idea 
uh, as we mentioned a moment ago, that Jared is in charge of just everything. Everything. The fact that no one is prepared for what comes out of Trump's mouth, although you gave him, I think, a better vocabulary than I think he is now capable of. But basically, how do you parody this already parody? And I have to ask you, when you started writing it, and did they let you revise anything based on what happened or um, what has happened? The, it, the book went to bed as it were, I, I think it was March 7th, where I was correcting the last galleys in a bar in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And it was supposed to come out May 14th, and then COVID hit. And so the publication date was moved back a little bit. The only change I made in the galleys, and this is sort of weird, there's a line where Herb says, Trump has done something that becomes a meme. And the, it said, he said, the meme went more viral than the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. And the copy wow. editor, the, yeah, the copy editor wrote, obviously that was written, you know, before, before I had, right. you heard the word COVID, but we were just starting to hear it as, as I was correcting the galleys. And the, the very able uh, copy editor wrote in the margin, are you sure? So, so, so we changed that. But that's the only change. Uh, wow. There are a couple of things in the book that are, I will pat myself on the back for. I know uh -huh. that, that one shouldn't. But I have at the beginning, a, uh, a uh, Putin calls a special election to get himself elected president. Re-elected, right. yeah. Now, I yeah. wrote that in September. And Oof. he did the, wow. uh what, about a month ago, right? Right. Now, you know, I, okay, that, okay. that wasn't, I mean, it's not like I foresaw the invention of uh, penicillin or something. I mean, you might, you might logically expect a dictator <laughs> to do something like that. One of the fascinating no. things to me about dictators is they have to be dictators for life because it, once they step down, they're vulnerable. Right. I mean, name right. me a dictator, if you will, who has said, "Oh, okay, I've had enough. I'm done. I'm going to take over." <laughs> and now uh, I'm going to take uh, a sabbatical from my dictator. I think I, I just need a sabbatical. You know, yeah. Being dictator isn't easy. Being me right. isn't easy. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. I gave up. Um, this is my nineteenth book. I suppose a, a lot of them have been political satires. I lived in Washington for almost thirty years. But I gave up political satire about five years ago on the grounds that, you know, American politics had become pretty much self parody. And yeah. So I, uh, I wrote a couple of historical novels and had fun doing that. But uh, everyone kept saying to me, you know, why aren't you writing about this? And I said, well, you know, why bother? And yet, we obviously live in a golden age of satire. I mean, look at this, uh, what Stephen Colbert is doing. What. Look right. at this brilliant young woman, uh, Sarah Cooper. Yes, you know, with her lip syncing. Uh, uh, I mean, she's pioneering a, a whole new field. <laughs> uh, and Jail Colvin and uh, Seth Meyers, and I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people are knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Now, what they do is is very different from what I do. This is 
aspires to be, you know, literary satire. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 67 now and <laughs> well into my Medicare era. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm now increasingly obsessed by will my book still be in print, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years mm -hmm. from now. Mm -hmm. that's, so that's what one hopes for. Well, hard to say. But, you know, I have to say, if there is a silver lining to the Trump administration, and I don't think there is one, it would be publishing all these books. He's probably more responsible for the uptick in book sales than Oprah was with her book club. Well, I mean, there's so uh, many books that have come out of this messy administration and so many more to come. I think you may be right. And we also, now that there's a raging pandemic, which he is, let's say, admit, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, partly responsible for. Yes. Uh, we have lots of time to read. Lots of um, time to read. There, Simon & Schuster, my publisher, brought out the aforementioned John Bolton's book, and then uh, three weeks later brought out Mary Trump book. It and I see another one is, uh, there, Simon & Schuster is publishing another one by, uh, is it Rick Gates? Yeah. Uh, no, there's going to be a, a plethora of, of these books. Uh, well, everyone who works at the White House for more than five minutes, Lisa, writes a, a White House memoir. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yes, this is, this is a, uh, we're in a target-rich uh, environment. Although at some point, I think a sense of fatigue sets in. Alessandra Stanley, mm -hmm. who's helping Graydon Carter edit his new online publication, Airmail, did a review of, of some of these books. And she described, she described it, she had a wonderful description, said reading them is like walking through uh, a canal full of greasy water. <laughs> Boy, does that sound inviting? <laughs> but yes, now, of course, no, it does not. My book. No, no, my book is like wading through <laughs> champagne, right? <laughs> through through clean suds. You know, there are uh, White House books you want to read, and White House books you kind of don't want to read. Well, I'm going to reiterate to our listeners that your book is one that you do want to read because it gives you. It, it makes you laugh. It's just very, very funny. You are a funny man and have been just a, a wonderful resource through those 19 books. You were kind enough to write a little piece for my book, True Prep. I remember. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, about being. Now you take it back many years. Yes. That um, was 10 years ago. Almost. And, you know, it's it's just a pleasure talking to you. Also, also, I have to say, having grown up as you did, as the son of the kind of er conservative of our time, when you announced that you were voting for Barack Obama, you were still, I think, on the editorial board of the National Review that your father founded. Uh, yes. And I was fired. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I know. So I noted. How, did, how do you get fired by a magazine of which you were a part owner? I, right. It's well, it's it's a hat trick. <laughs> it's a hat trick. It's it's like something you would make up in it's, in one of your books. Exactly. It's yes. Exactly right. Maybe it was part of my uh, training in satire. Yes. Well, I I have to say this just makes me a longtime fan. So I'm really delighted 
to talk to you. I don't know where you are. Where are you? I am in uh, the great state of Connecticut. Ah, very nice. The Nutmeg State. I live in the house that I grew up in. Oh, that is nice. My mother just turned 90 and she... We went from being the young family in the building, and now she's probably the senior, senior, senior tenant in our apartment building. And it's like living in in a small town. Mm-hmm. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, living I, in your childhood I like home. The familiarity of it. I have a memory square foot of the property uh, mm. that I inhabit, and it's it's uh, comforting. Yes. Well, let's get to your five things, starting with number one. The aforementioned uh, South Carolina doctor, my wife, Katie Close. Lovely. And how do you commute between or does she commute between South Carolina and Connecticut? South Carolina and Connecticut. As one has to. She is from a town called Fort Mill, which is uh, about 20 minutes south of Charlotte. Ah. Her grandfather was a very interesting guy named uh, Elliot Springs White Close. He was a, an ace in World War One. <gasps> wow. He, he, w- he went to Princeton. He was in uh, Scott Fitzgerald's class. Oh, he, man. He, uh, uh, when America joined the war, he immediately uh, volunteered and he flew. This was actually before America joined the war. He, so he flew for the Canadians and the Brits. Mm. And then America joined the war and then he became a, an American fighter pilot and shot down uh, 12 Germans. And he wrote a novel about it called Warbirds, which was based on the diary of one of his dead comrades. Wow. And he just sort of filled it, filled out the diary a little bit and became a huge bestseller. So he was, you know, he was living La Vida Loca in, mm-hmm. in New York after the war, driving around in, you know, Studs Bearcat and, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, Going to the store club. You know, drinking out of ladies' shoes at the right. 21 Club. Right. And then uh, his father was a, owned a, a mill. And then the father took ill and he had to, uh, Katie's grandfather had to decide between uh, you know a life in uh, writing writing books or taking over the family business so he, he he did the latter and we're all grateful to that knowing 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 what uh, what kind of life what kind of money you make as a writer as you, a writer you and I, you yes. and I are uh, kind of familiar with that anyway I love her to death she is a uh, my wife she's a humanitarian doctor she worked for on and off for 15 years at a hospital in Haiti. Oh my. And then uh, a couple of years ago uh, when Ebola broke out, she went off to Liberia for seven weeks. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. We had a oh, conjugal visit seven weeks later in Geneva and be- <laughs> she <laughs> had to follow a very strict protocol whereby if she evinced, she had to take her own temperature like you know every three hours and if, if she evinced any of these symptoms she had to put on a hazmat suit uh-huh. and drive immediately to a specific clinic in Geneva <laughs> oh <my laughs> imagine God. how I felt where the World Health Organization is on Christmas yeah. Eve but anyway she is uh, she has a very large uh, soul uh, my, my darling Katie and uh, and she's uh, and a, a very smart lady too. She has a master's in public health and a degree from the London School of Hygiene and, and Tropical Medicine. Oh my goodness! So if well, I get a tropical medicine, 
I know who to turn to, and I, I don't have that's, to go far. Well, she, oh, when that's she was fantastic. That, when she was doing that course in London, we were living there, and she would bring home her homework, and we'd be sitting there on the couch at night, and I'd be reading you know, a big pile of English tabloids, which was sort of guilty pleasure. And she'd be studying uh, her textbook with that had photos of the most horrible things you can imagine. you know. And I would accidentally look at them and quickly <laughs> turn away. I mean, oh my. Nature's nature has all sorts of ways to get back at you. Well, we've learned that nature is the boss of yes, us. Yes. Yes. And we, we have, have certainly learned, learned that. And what does that tell us, Lisa? That does that tell us to pay attention to the scientists? I think so. I think so, too. <laughs> Dr. Fauci, how do you feel about drinking Clorox? Uh, I mean, um, uh, that press conference yeah, of, it, of the light and the Clorox. Yeah. When he's, looking, when he's looking over at Dr. Bricks. Dr. Bricks. And the if, look on her face. But <laughs> why didn't someone just get uh, one of those poles and yank him off stage and get rid of him? Yeah. I mean, he's... Insane. I know. It, okay, we have to move on. Okay. Uh, number two. Number two, air conditioning. Yes, here, here. Do I even need to explain? No, you why don't. And the, that is number two on my No, on, on it's a hundred degrees today it's, in it's New York. So a hundred degrees. Yeah. So exactly. okay, air conditioning. Number three, Julian's borscht soup. Julian. You seem to like beets because Hedda pairs beets oh, in the beginning of the novel. You know, I had not, I had not actually connected Hedda's beets with Julian's borscht, but I think you may be onto something. I think uh, I connected Julian a dot. Makes the most amazing borscht soup. It's sort of, it's a, it's pink, not red. And it's served cold. He puts the bowls in the freezer before oh my before ladling the soup. So you want the bowls are nice and cold, and then he puts the borscht in and sprinkles in the bowl and sprinkles chopped up cucumbers Ooh. and dill, and then in the middle he puts a a steaming hot red potato. <gasps> Yeah. Who is Julian? Just the best. Well, Julian's been with our family now since 1978. He is wow. a, a very trained, highly trained chef. He's become a, you know, a, a family. And my mm. mom, my parents in, in the 70s, early 70s, were on, a, they chartered with some friends a boat in the, in the Mediterranean. One of the friends mm -hmm. was David Niven, the late actor. The great <gasps> friend. Oh, how divine. And Julian was the cook. And my mom took one look at Julian and waggled her, her finger and said, you are coming with me. And, uh, <laughs> so he did. He's English and the sweetest soul I know. Oh, how friend. wonderful. Okay, you have a beat thing. Number four. Dr. Strangelove, the movie, the 1964 Stanley Kubrick movie. And indeed, I owe um, that movie a debt because the, the, one of the things that triggers the plot in uh, Make Russia Great Again is a computer. That right. Is called, which is codenamed Placid Reflux. Oh, I love and it. And it's, it's, it's autonomous, so it doesn't need to be controlled. And it's in the basement of the U.S. Well, it can't be man. controlled. Well, That's exactly. Part like, of, remember the right. doomsday 
machine in Doctor Strangelove. Right. It, it has to be autonomous, otherwise it doesn't really work. And when uh, <laughs> this was put there, this, was, this program was devised by President Obama, and it's designed to retaliate against any country that interferes in our elections. Right. And when Mr. Trump doesn't retaliate against Russia, the computer assumes that the president has been taken out or isolated or, or removed. From it. <laughs> right. So it it steals an election from Mr. Putin and gives a, 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 and gives it to the head of the a communist commie. party. Mm-hmm. So hilarious. Uh, and then there's Oleg, but Oleg. but oh, he's so anyway, Doctor Strangelove. I I submit is the greatest I, I, satire ever ever put on film. It's a movie I probably watch at least once a year and i i review and for anybody who's never seen it it's also an important movie i think has a cast of thousands stanley kubrick's there's a new biography that was published. reviewed today uh, today with typical brilliance by by dwight garner the new york times yes he's a wonderful uh, critic uh, so it, re- it reminds us all over again what a what a brilliant and you know slightly strange guy uh, Kubrick was but, but he was an artist he, you know he was uh, Spartacus paths of glory yes. full metal jacket Barry and yes. clockwork orange toward the end they got a little odd eyes wide shut. eyes wide I shut was peculiar able to make it through that but so what you know yeah and even a he's genius, allowed uh, he's allowed and then of course 2001 but 2001 which I have you have you watched that recently? No, it, not since I was a kid. S L O W. Oh, uh, I believe that. But the scenes with the with the music, you know, the the Strauss, uh, the Strauss, uh, Strauss uh, uh-huh. Zarathustra, Thustra, are still yeah. stunning. But it's well, I, it would be it would be worth a watch. Number five. Number five. Pears soap. Now I I know you know about pears soap. It's a very pretty package, it and it's a lovely amber oh, soap. It was my, my it, granny. It's clear. My it, Well, it's uh, yeah, it's clear. It's, it's as you say, amber. It it's a uh, uh, I guess an oil. It's a neutral glycerin. Yeah. I think glycerin, maybe glycerin. Yeah. My grandmother, my grandmother had it. And I shouting just, words. <laughs> glycerin, glycerin. My Gravel. grandmother had it, and it just reminds me of her. Uh, and so I, uh, and it's a, it's a lovely smelling soap, and I can get it at our local uh, pharmacy. I don't think you can get it at everywhere. As with everything, you can get it yes. online. You can get it online. It's a very, it's an elegant bar of soap to have in your, especially in your guest bathroom. Absolutely. Well, I have loved talking to you, and it's time for me to say you've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Christopher Buckley, author of Make Russia Great Again, a novel ski <laughs> published in July by Simon & Schuster Ski. His official website is ChristopherBuckley.com. My blog is at LisaBurnbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. 
My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a damn mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 